Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to Indigenous artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bears, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of CANA, the Native American programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our Indigenous communities from around the region and country. I want to introduce you to Neil Ambrose Smith, descendant of the Confederate Salish and Kootenai Nation of Montana. He is a contemporary Native American painter, sculptor, printmaker, and professor at the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe. His work is included in collections of many national and international museums and institutions, including the New York Public Library, the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian, and the museums in France and Seoul, South Korea. He received his BA from the University of Northern Colorado and his MFA from the U- University of New Mexico. What makes Neil Ambrose Smith so interesting is that he's considered America's leading painter of white people. He was born in Texas with a creative fire that began to smolder at a young age. Neil Ambrose Smith learned color, shading, light, shadow from closely observing the nature and drawing what he saw. Always fascinated by the culture and customs of the white people in his area that he lived, the young Neil Ambrose Smith absorbed their stories and traditions and soon considered them among his closest friends. Okay, so that's a statement from his website. I encourage you to check the show notes and uh, to read the full statement because it is something else. But for context, let's jump into this interview with Neil Ambrose Smith. Neil, thank you so much for joining us at Five Plain Questions. It's, it's so great and an honor to have you here. Thanks for having me, Joe. Would you be able to introduce yourself? Uh, tell us about your background, what you do, where you're from. Well, um, I'm an artist, and um, I've been an artist ever since I can remember. In fact, um, I come from a family of artists, and my mom would tell me this story, which is not a story that I can remember, that was the first time I started painting. And I was in my high chair, um, and she was giving me chocolate pudding. Uh, in, uh, we were living in a trailer at the time and, uh, and I didn't eat it. I put it on my face. I was face painting. And so I was like rubbing it all over and this was our little routine. And then, um, my grandmother came in and really upset over the situation and was, uh, throwing things around and cleaning me up and, you know, putting stuff away and then left in a huff. And then, uh, and then my mom got the chocolate pudding out again and slid it in front of me and we went back to the routine, you know? So, um, I, I think I've been a painter forever in that sense. And, um, and then eventually she started painting and then, um, and then I copied her. So, um, I've had a symbiotic relationship, uh, with another artist who was a family member and also my mother, uh, forever. And, um, it's pretty amazing, I have to say, because I do have a lot of artist friends that I depend on to critique my work and to let me know what's going on. And then in turn, uh, share my critique with their work. And, um, cause that's how we grow, you know, we share in stealing, uh, ideas and information, but, um, uh, Jean and I have depended on each other, um, forever for this you know i i was raised as a studio assistant i used to tear canvases five dollars a canvas then uh i'd have to cut them up and then bury them in the yard so nobody could get them 
and um, and I was stretching canvas and gessoing. I uh, I would tear drawings and eventually uh, going to art school, coming back and um, getting more art history under my belt. That was European art history uh, because before that. Um, I pretty much had a, a tremendous amount of Native American art history uh, growing up with uh, Linda Loma Haftua and uh, Corita Coffey and Joe Federson, like showing up at the house, George Longfish, you know, everybody coming down for Indian Market and they would camp in the yard and somebody would be out there carving and um, and there'd always be uh, Indian artists everywhere. And, and so... Um, going to college uh, gave me uh, the European canon. And so I had the two uh, pieces of art history that fed me uh, that were really important because it, it it's it's who I am and it goes into my work. You know, I need to know what's happening around the world and, um, and I need to know what's been happening here or within my own culture, that, that sort of thing. It's also uh, made me a... a uh, culture whore uh, and and a foodie, and so traveling and experiencing other peoples and uh, has only fed not only my soul and my work but um, my belly as well, which is really wonderful. And it's a it's it's been a great journey, I have to say. I think it's fascinating that you had a a really great grasp on indigenous Native American art history before the Western art history uh, came to you. Because I think so many of us, um, we don't have that level of, of engagement, uh, you know, because a lot of us uh, from, at least I can speak from the Northern Plains here, you know, we might have uh, art courses in high school, maybe if we're lucky. And then we have summer institutes that we go to. Um but the, the formal education comes first, and then later, we, through relationships, we pick up on pieces of, of who's maybe come before us, who's uh, influencing us now. So I think that's fascinating that you stepped into this, this Western structure with a solid background already. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, you know, every, everything happens, uh, uh call it fatalism or, or be, you know, because it's supposed to be, but, um, you know, Jean, uh, being a minority and, uh, you know, a person of color and also a woman, um, that's two strikes against you, uh, in the world and then trying to be an artist. That's, that's number three. (laughs) And, um, when she was in school, you know, the professors would always tell her, well, you can't be an artist, you know, because you're not a man. Uh, but you can teach, you can teach art or something. And, um, you know, she kept going around, you know, those closed doors and, uh, climbing in through the windows and sort of thing and, um, and dragging me with her. I, you know, we didn't have childcare or any kind of thing like that. So, um, I was, I was a witness to this type of, um, not taking no for an answer or at least not listening to no and just moving forward because this is what, you need to do. This is what you want to do. And, um, consequently she has, uh, created, uh, this incredible network. You know, she, she became an, this like nomadic artist and, you know, she was traveling to Washington in, you know, back in the early eighties and, uh, in the late seventies 
in uh, visiting George Longfish and and uh, checking out what was happening in, in the shows that uh, he was curating and putting on and what he was doing, creating a, a, a native microcosm at one end of the United States. And then she would go to New York and Pete Jemison was working at the gallery in, in, the, in the city, creating another native microcosm. And, and she was making these connections, these networks, you know, kind of uh, uh, the uh, apple seed network, you know, and planting and, and harvesting and creating and curating shows and moving things around. And um, I, was, I was there with, you know, ha- having that experience. And um, I think it, it really, it fed my soul in the beginning for sure. And then discovering um, world art history and then the movements, you know, and learning about uh, man, you know, their, their manifestos and, and the writing, you know, like Dadism and Cubism and, you know, maybe Cobra and all of these different things that were happening and why and what was going on. And I didn't see it so different than native art history, you know, because we sort of had the same thing. You know, we have these periods uh, starting, you know, going all the way back and, and, you know, and as you go from one date to another, like you could say 1900, you know, what was happening? Well, that's like, it was an explosion of photography. You know, the, the Pulas were taking photos and, and uh, documenting information that uh, maybe the greater world doesn't understand at the time, but uh, native identity is there and alive. And then you move forward and where there's Indian agencies and then they take the kids out of, you know, the, off the reservation and you throw them into boarding schools and then they, they get, the parents get jobs uh, with the BIA and then they have to travel. And so they're moving families out and they're moving into cities and then you get college education. And so you're moving from, you know, one stage and evolution to another and it happened really fast in this last hundred years uh in native american art huge changes compared to um how long it took the rest of the world you know going all the way all the way back you know like rock drawings and then moving up into like sculpture and then discovering oil paint and then senefelder discovering lithography and like these things it they took so much time, you know, for them to do all that. And we just went through it in a hundred years. We, our, our evolution was just exponential. So I sort of had that there. And then, you know, seeing that relationship to uh, world art history was really um, gratifying to me. So I think this brings us right into the next question of who are your, your biggest influences? Clearly, um, we we know one, um, but if we can explore this, well, certainly Jean Quictacy Smith, my mother, um, is the greatest influence, and I think as um, it's it's more than um, most people get because um, I I followed I followed the the entire evolution of her career. So I was, I was witness, you know, to how it happened. And, um, that's something that other people don't get. So usually if you pick an artist, let's say Philip Gustin, one of my favorite painters, um, it's on paper in person. I've seen the paintings, you know, and when Jean and I go to New York, 
definitely go to the Met. We go to the permit collection. We look at the Gustins, you know, have to stand there for a while, you know, because it's wonderful. You can smell the paint. You can see the brush strokes. You can, you know, bear witness. But it's not the same thing as being fed by that person, you know, continually throughout your life when you're very small to, as you get older, to a, a greater understanding. Um, totally different experience. And, uh, you know, uh, definitely blessed by that, you know, for, for my career. Cause it's, it's enabled me to, to do so many things. Um, but for sure, uh, Philip Gustin, Corita Coffey, um, Linda Loma Haftawa, George Longfish, uh, Joe Federson, Pete Jemison, uh, wonderful artists, um, that fed me. And, uh, you know, a lot of the standards, of course, I appreciate Picasso, um, all the Dottists, uh, the Cobra group. I, I love those painters. Um, I don't know. I, I'd have to say that I can't turn down good art and there's so much good art out there. Um, that, uh, if somebody starts talking about somebody, I'd be like, Oh yeah. Oh, I, I love that artist. Uh, I love that work, you know. Uh, Jim Dine, yeah, there's some really good stuff. I can really appreciate that, you know. Uh, and um, so I, I think, and, and I, it's probably my mom's fault, for sure, that I appreciate art in general, uh, that it's, it, it, um, it has purpose, it has meaning, and it has function. Which is another thing that I learned in art history is um, functional art and non-functional art. And where they would talk about um, uh, primitive art, like blankets and baskets, as non-functional uh, as far as fine art goes. But it's because it has a function in society. Like a vessel holds something, you know, ceramics will hold something, or a blanket keeps you warm and it separates you from the floor. And so um, those that function eliminates uh, any ability for that to be fine art. I mean, you could take the blanket off the floor and hang it on the wall, but then maybe you're just romanticizing a culture that created said blanket, and it's not still considered fine art at that, at that level. And I was raised with the the opposite thinking that all art is functional. A painting that's on my wall gives me my sense of identity. Obviously I don't, I can't know what another artist has lived through and their experiences and their culture and their language that went into the work. And I can only surmise, uh, f from reading about them, maybe meeting them, uh, and, uh, um, getting the title and maybe something written about the piece, right? And that's it. But really, the point is, uh, any art that's out there is a mirror of yourself. It's a reflection of your identity. So whatever you see, you're seeing yourself within that work. And, and, and so it makes it functional to me because it brings me joy. It brings me happiness. It brings me to myself. There's a conversation that's happening. And that goes with everything. <laughs> it, could, it could be my coffee cup that is from a potter, you know, that, that made it. And I'm having that, you know, witnessing that moment in the morning, right? 
we're having that conversation. So I think all art is functional in that way and um, has purpose and meaning and life that gives it a life force. And that goes back to like cultural identity, you know, like uh, the whole NAGPRA act where repatriating masks and, and things, you know, uh, uh, medicine bundles, you know, back to tribes uh, because they have life and, and function and meaning, you know, for certain people. And art's the same way. It has life. If if a painting is in the basement of a museum, it's like the tree in the forest, you know? Yeah, it's it has purpose and meaning, but why is it in the basement? It needs to be experienced. People need to see this. They need to have this interaction. And I And I think that native identity that I have um, makes me more uh, receptive to art in general and to appreciate it. Um, and so that I can't say that I have a favorite artist out there because you never know where inspiration is going to give you a great idea to create something, you know? So I have to, I have to ask, uh, What's emerging right now that's really grabbing your attention? Um, you know, there's been some waves uh, coming through uh, a lot of that installation art um, um, as far as like non-collectible art. Like it's, it's ephemeral in a sense. Maybe it's performative. Uh, maybe it's uh, installation. It's, it's instant. And, um, and it's just set up and then it, it tears down. There's there's a connection to that for me and to um, graffiti. In that, uh, you know, public murals kind of have the same kind of thing, except the public murals are for everybody. You can be going to work and witness that. You don't have to go to the opening. You don't have to go to the gallery or seek it out at, at the museum, and um, I, I kind of, I, I, so I transitioned from, you know, gosh, maybe I need to do installation work or something, you know, cause that's really, uh, that's really hot. And, um, and then I started seeing, oh, well, you know, all this graffiti is amazing. You know, that's just, that's a, a public art is really a wonderful space. So, and then I was thinking about that and then, um, and then I would just go back into my own thing. And so, uh, recently I've been working with glass and it's crazy. Uh, Joe Federson has been telling everybody, you need to work with glass. You need to do some glass stuff. This glass is where it's at, you know? But the glass that I've been doing is neon. It's totally different than actually um, a vessel or a, a shape or a, a figure. And um, the first neon piece I did was in 2009, and it was a teepee. And I, had, I was like flipping through a, an AE catalog, you know, abstract expressionism and um i saw this uh piece by piero calzalori and it was a triangle that said abstract in your home across the center and it was neon it was a black and white image it was only like two inches by two inches so i had no idea what the color was i just assumed it was red and but when i first saw it um you know personal identity and history kicked in and i was like hey it's a teepee and it makes sense because it says it's abstract in your home. I was like, oh, that's really cool. But then it wasn't a teepee after all. So then I was like, oh, inspiration. I'm going to make one and make it into a teepee. And so I put the teepee poles at the top 
sticking out, right? And then my mom's like, oh, don't forget the ear flap. And I was like, yes, the ear flap. Now, now we know that it's a teepee for sure. And, um, and I, I think I gleaned an idea of the scale of the piece. And um, I went to this neon shop in town that she had used prior, a, f- a few years uh, before, um, to, uh, I think it was in the 90s. She, she did this series, this environmental series. Of course, her work is largely environmental in a lot of ways, or landscape in that, in that sense. But uh, she was talking about um, uh, the clear cutting and uh, deforestation and things like that. And so she had these neon strips in between the canvases or maybe above the canvas, just a color that really like explosive fearless man she is fearless and so i went to this guy and he remembered her and everything and and i I had to make this teepee and it was great but then um nothing happened like well it was part of my graduate thesis anyway and so um i had it sitting around for a while and then um and then it went into a couple of shows and it and it traveled but like nobody picked up on it you know it just didn't go anywhere and so um, wasn't until, uh, this past year, uh, like last in, in 2020 that I got an opportunity to do this show downtown Albuquerque at, at, uh, 516 and they had this huge wall space and they love artists to do an installation there or a mural or something. And I wasn't a muralist and, um, but I decided that, uh, I'm going to go back to glass and I'll just do a big uh, neon thing in that space. And it was because uh, the Albuquerque Museum just requested my neon teepee uh, for a show. And so I had just unearthed it and mounted it on something, made it practical, and took it down there and installed it at the museum uh, uh, that summer. And so I was like, yeah, I want to do some more glass. This is very exciting. So I, I take my scribbles out of my paintings and my drawings. And I do these Cy Twombly scribbles and stuff. Bryce Martin, right? You know, he sells his paintings for a million dollars. If I can scribble like that, maybe it has some value, right? And so I made this uh, maquette uh, with four colors. And I worked with that uh, neon shop for about five months. And we made this huge neon installation uh, and had it installed there. And um, I taught myself uh, programming language so I could put timers on the glass with dimmers instead of flashers. So the glass would fade in and out of these different colors. It was really a wonderful piece, almost like a map of the United States, which is probably not far from the mark because Jean does maps. And then... Um, so that was up for a while, and then it went to Montana, and right now it's up at the um, uh, Missoula Art Museum, um, uh, lighting uh, the venue. And um, so glass has really been exciting. And then, um, then I did another teepee after that. And so I've done two more teepees actually since. Uh, did another red one, and I did another blue one. And um, and I'm thinking about doing another teepee. <laughs> right now so glass is pretty exciting so there's that on my radar and then i've also been thinking about engraving so i i I just i just stocked up on all this engraving 
tools and thinking about making some um, uh, bracelets and teaching myself engraving. One of those things, you know, instead of like running out and taking a class for months and learning something, uh, it's definitely something I got from my mom. So well, just, just get the tools and just see what happens, you know, kind of thing. So those are certainly, uh, those are the things that are on my radar. And, um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's what's going on. So how have you developed your career? Uh, college, post-college? Bizarre. Uh, the development of my career, I have to say was really strange and I'm not, I can't really say why. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a piece of, um, trying to break away from parents, you know, because let's face it, if you, if your parents are successful at something, they expect the the children to do the same thing, to follow and, and to, to have the same success. So, um, you know, if your parents are lawyers, they're going to say, oh, well, if you want to go into dance and theater and art, that's fine. You could do that on the side. But um, you need to put bread on the table, and so you need to be a lawyer. And it was pretty much the same in my family. My mom was like, well, you know, look, if you want to go into theater, uh, into law or, you know, music, that's fine. Uh, you can do that on the side. But uh, if you want to put bread on the table, you need to be a painter. <laughs> and so I... Um, when I got out of college, actually, going back to high school uh, as a as a freshman in high school, uh, you know, picking classes, you know, and there's an elective. And she was like, "Oh, you should take this guitar class." And I was like, oh, "I don't want to take guitar. I don't want to take guitar." And so I took this guitar class, and I I found uh, a a rekindled love for music because when my dad came into the house, he brought rock and roll when I was a kid, and. Um, and we had a reel to reel and we would listen to like eight hours of Beatles, Stones, uh, CSR and what, you know, Neil Young or whatever, you know, just the who. And, um, and so I, I always wanted to be a drummer <laughs> in my mind, you know, but I would draw all the time. So I was drawing like, you know, bands and drummers and things like that. Um, and, uh, so, so I, I learned guitar and, uh, and, and I stuck with it, you know, it, it was really fabulous. And then the next year, oh, you should take a design class. I don't want to take design. I don't want to take a design class. So I took this design class, uh, and it wasn't very good, but there was some other kids in there. And this is what happens. There's the kids that take these classes that take them over and over and over again. And so they're, because they're really good at it. And so what in the guitar class, I ran into a, a guy who probably wasn't going to get a high school degree, but he was taking this guitar class forever and he was amazing. And so that influence, that inspiration really stuck with me. And then in the design class, there was another guy in there, same thing, you know, like this inspiration of, you know, their ability. And then the following year, uh, my mom's like, Oh, you should take this drama class. Oh, I don't want to take drama. Uh, you know? So I took theater and then I ended up like taking theater for the next two years. And then I was in swing choir and, you know, so I was in the performing arts and in all this stuff. And then I get out of high school and she was like, well, if you're going to go to college, um, I'll pay for it, but you have to go to art school, which was fine. So I went to art school and it was great because then I really, cut my teeth in painting and, um, 
you know, I had this evolution in, in all the other stuff that I did, plus, you know, this traditional art, that kind of thing. And, um, but I'm not a great student in the sense of traditional learning. I, I really struggled in school and I never had great grades. And because I, you know, I wasn't good with tests and the way tests were administered, <laughs> these things just didn't work for me. I wasn't, I wasn't a Western learner. And, um, so by the time I got out of college, uh, I had to run and escape any kind of institutionalized learning and do anything else. So I traveled, uh, I went to Mexico for a month. Then I ended up going to, uh, Spain and, uh, France. I lived in Spain for like five months and then, um, went to North Carolina, lived there for a couple of years. But in each of these places, I ended up studying some kind of art. You know, so like, like when I was in Spain, we were like, we, you know, you couldn't get a regular job because I didn't speak Spanish. And, um, so we were trying to make jewelry, you know, like, and we, we got these, you know, tools and, and saws and things. And we were like sawing the coins and we were like cutting out Franco out of these coins and, um, and making, uh, bracelets and things. And then in North Carolina, I got a job with a goldsmith. So I ended up making, you know, elaborate gold jewelry for a long time. And then, um, and then working in bike shops and then, and from working in bike shops, uh, I ended up learning how to weld titanium and, um, work on, uh, making titanium bicycle tube sets, you know, making frames. And, um, and so I was learning all these like art skills, you know, and then making t-shirts in there, you know, like it's so easy to make us, you know, you just get a screen and you can make t-shirts out on the street, you know, and tell people to just throw it in the oven for an hour and it's set. And, um, so going to like, uh, uh art fairs and, um, you know, maybe, uh, uh, festivals or something. Uh, so I, I, you know, and then wait, waiting tables and, you know, whatnot. So I did all these crazy things, plus playing in bands <laughs> the whole time, and um, ended up coming back to New Mexico, and um, and then again working uh, for art shipping companies and art creating companies. I mean, it was always there. You know, it was always happening. And then um, and then uh, and getting a job with a newspaper and learning design and using uh, Photoshop and Illustrator and stuff like that. Um, in Dreamweaver, <laughs> Macromedia, that's, that's the, uh, that was the, the main tool at the time. Very exciting software. Nobody even knows what Macromedia means today. And, uh, and then QuickTime, teaching myself HTML and XML and, um, learning how to build websites. I mean, like all this stuff, like just fed me and, but the whole time I was in contact with my mom. I mean, that never ended. And she would send me pastel drawings uh, with collage on it as a letter. Like, how are you doing? You know, kind of thing. So I have like this stack of art that's always followed me wherever I went. And um, coming back to New Mexico and, and then moving, um, you know, a couple miles from my mom's studio, uh, really... I, I then then I was ready, so I had to. 
I had to run out and um, experience the world and see things and then bring it back and then start to focus. And I think that's what it is. So I'm a late bloomer in that sense. You know, like I got my master's degree when I was 45. That's pretty late. (laughs) Yeah. As we move through our careers, how opportunities present themselves change, right? Uh, We seek opportunities and then over time they start to present themselves in different ways. And so uh, the question would be is how how do you seek and how have they presented themselves to you? I think um, for myself, uh, because I don't, I, I think it's atraditional. Like a lot of people just make things happen. Like they go out there and force it. And I, I've been able to, um, you know, because of the connection to my mom, uh, I've already met a lot of these opportunities. I've already uh, run into them at some level. And, but then there's the vetting process. So it, it, I think it's been a lot easier for me than probably for many other artists. And I think for a lot of other artists, when I run into them, uh, there's a bit of a shell. There's a bit of a, a hardening because they had to work extra hard to get there. You know, that it forced them um, to to bend in a way that probably they didn't want to bend uh, to make those opportunities happen. And um, I I've been afforded uh, the opposite, and it's not that I was protected from it, but I was. Uh, given an opportunity to just be myself. And I think for me, it's been great because I have a high energy level, I'm personable, and um, I work really hard and, and I deliver. And, um, and I, and I uh, people see that right away. I mean, they, they experience that. And uh, I think that's really made a difference for me. That I'm not, I'm not, I, I guess I'm not unreachable. I'm accessible, you know? And I think that, for me, that's been great. I'm not sure if that's great for everybody. But um, I can tell that all the opportunities that I've had over the years, um, especially, you know, in the last five years, uh, my accessibility it has been a coup for me. And, um, and I know it's directly related to, um, Jean and her career and our relationship. And because our relationship is, uh, healthy, active and fun, you know, like, uh, the youthfulness of creating, you know, the act of creating for us is not this serious, diabolical, I need to smoke cigarettes and drink whiskey all night to make this painting, you know, kind of thing. I need to suffer, you know, kind of thing. (laughs) And I think we've covered that too, talking about printmaking and master printers, you know, Mm -hmm. I need to suffer, you know, (laughs) like that's not here for me. I don't suffer to make art. Like art for me is joy and it's fun, even if I'm talking about difficult things. And in, you know, especially with Jean's work, she talks about uh, serious hardship and difficult things. You know, there's, there are things in her work that are confrontational in that way. 
but was it made that way? No. And, and actually, ultimately, the presentation is joyful. It's really fun. I mean, maybe her work is more of a jagged pill than mine, but uh, it's a pill nonetheless. And I think there's, there's an active coyote humor involved um, in our careers and in our work. And um, um, she had serious hardship growing up. Uh, her, her life was very difficult in the beginning. And she stuck with it. And she surrounded herself uh, with fabulous people along the way and can, still continues to do that. And so um, that, that has certainly uh, opened things for me and opened my eyes uh, to, to be able to uh, respond and recognize, you know, things like that. But yeah, I, th- I, think, I think that's what it is for me is, is that uh, it's a fearlessness to be myself and to be free and uh, to be accessible and open. And I think uh, as artists, that's what we are. I mean, we are uh, receptors all the time. I mean, we're constantly affected by things around us in our environment uh, because it feeds our work and it goes into our work. And um, But a lot of artists uh, shell themselves in a protective layer when they're dealing with uh, society uh, in a in in that forum, you know the, the the business side, they they tend to harden themselves there, and um, not be as free, and um, and I'm not I'm not there, and I think it's because I'm not I'm not worried about the job, I'm not worried about getting the job, I'm I'm not, you know I don't expect to win anything, <laughs> and I, I certainly know that I'm not owed anything. And that's okay. I'm okay with that, you know, because I can still make my work. And as long as I can make my work, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you want to say to the 18 or 22-year-old that's listening to this conversation? I think I just said it. <laughs> you did. You did. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's that don't lose yourself in, uh, in the nonsense of how serious you have to be or what an artist is like, what, what is your passion? Do you like the smell of a crayon? Do you like the sound of charcoal coming across a paper? You know, that toothy paper that grabs the charcoal and it breaks it and it crumbles and you hear that sound as it goes across, or do you not like it? Do you prefer the smooth caressing of a number nine filbert as it moves oil paint over a surface? You know, whatever it is, the sound, the snapping sound of a brayer and and a high viscosity ink, you know, as it goes back and forth, you know, that thing. There's there's a passion that drives you to make art. An artist, being an artist is a disease, and it's not something that you can just like shake off, you know, like fleas, like a scourge. It's like luggage. It's like herpes. You have it forever, you know. It's It's with you. There's nothing you can do about it. Embrace it. And the passion that feeds it, what drives you to do it? Enjoy it. We're only on this planet for a short time. And if you really think about it, you've only got a few good years. You know, In other words, uh, the first 10 years, you just want to be able to drive and you want to be an adult. 
And then you get to drive, you know, for the next five years and you're like, well, you don't want to live at home anymore. Now you can drive. You got some freedom. You, you want to be independent. You don't want to be dependent on like having to go to bed at a certain time. So then you're out of the house and you've got a car and now what? Well, now you got to pay your bills. So now you got to work your butt off working lousy jobs and to, to be independent. It's a struggle and a fight. So then you spend like, like, and right now we've already covered 30 years of your life. And what have you done? <laughs> so it, you know, as human beings, we're such slow learners in that regard. It takes us such a long time for realization, for awakening. And don't waste your time. Enjoy life. You don't have to make a million dollars right now. You don't have to make the best work that you've ever made or going to make right this minute. It doesn't have to be a masterpiece. Enjoy it, you know? Just just enjoy. Where where can our listener find you, uh, find your work, and be able to connect with you? Um, that's a funny story. <laughs> um when I was, uh, when I was, uh, I've made uh, numerous websites over the years, and the last website I made for myself, for my art, um, I uh, I had discovered these painters, Stephen Wheeler, uh, for one, really good painter, love the work, part of a group of artists that called themselves the Indian Space Painters, and um, uh, being a trickster. Uh, that I am, I uh, stole their name and they used that as the name of my website, which uh, goes against all the rules uh, of uh, business uh, planning and marketing in that your website should be your name so that people can find you. <laughs> and uh, I totally disregarded that. And I use that name. So IndianSpacePainters.com is my website. So I've commandeered their name and uh, uh, made it my own. But if you just search my name, uh, I've got enough of a web presence now for all my antics that uh, I'm, I'm easily found um, in, the, uh, in the pages of Google. So I'm curious, uh, did they ever reach out to you uh, when you created your website? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, in fact, um, and I think this goes back to education, right? Because I, you know, uh, I've raised a couple of kids, and um, and then now I, you know, teaching at Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, um, everything that I do has some kind of educational component. Um, my my biography, I think it's my bio or my statement on my website, used to be the standard, you know, serious thing. And I just got tired of it, you know, and I was trying to figure out a way to change it. And, um, I ended up, uh, doing some research for a painting I was working on. And I remembered that, uh, there's these wonderful, uh, cowboy painters who love to paint Indians, you know, these, uh, these white guys. And so JD Challenger does incredible, uh, eagle feathers on his paintings and all of his paintings look like him. You know, even though he says it's a so-and-so chief, blah, 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 with this headdress or something, uh, they, they somehow, they have his nose and his <laughs> lips or something, you know. Uh, even though when you see pictures of him, he looks like Colonel Sanders or, <laughs> or the other colonel uh, from uh, uh, Wounded Knee or whatever. Anyway, uh, so um, so I was, I was researching his, uh, his paintings and 
I kept stumbling on these websites representing his work where it was uh, his biography and it was this crazy story and it was the same on all these that, you know, he was raised a certain way and uh, near a reservation and and so he's the premier uh, painter of Native Americans and, you know, all this like this, this uh, romantic uh, nonsense, you know. And I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. So I copied it and everywhere it said Native Americans, I put white people and everywhere it said JD Challenger, I put my name and I stuck that on my website as my uh, statement or whatever. And it's, it's, it's hilarious. So I recommend all your readers out there <laughs> to check it out and have a good laugh because it's so funny. I don't uh, paint white people. I mean, just you know, straight up. I'm not, I'm not a naturalist or, you know, uh, I mean, I do have some figurative work, but um, anyway, it's, you don't it's them, entertaining. You don't, you don't document white people in their conversations. <laughs> no, I, trust me, I'm not hiding behind you and listening to your conversations. <laughs> uh, this is a funny point. I um, I always ask uh, our guests for uh, a photograph and uh, their biography, and we attach that to the websites or to the uh, to these podcasts. And I generally draw from those biographies when I start out each episode. Um, so. The guests may have already heard some some very interesting biography uh, already on you, and they're probably pretty curious on what this conversation is going to be about. So, uh, I'll I'll take a look at that, and we'll go from there. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you, uh, Neil. Thank you so much for joining us and being a part of this. This was this was fantastic. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. This was great. Thank you so much. And that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank Neil again for his time and sharing his story with us. This was the second time Neil has been on the program, so to speak. Uh, during season two, his mother, jean de C. Smith, was a guest on the show. In fact, she was uh, episode one of season two, and he was uh, in the conversation with us. And it was really a lot of fun uh, to be able to have him back uh, in his own right uh, for the work that he does, uh, both as an artist, and as an administrator and so many many of you uh know who neil is and i really hope that um you appreciate uh having such uh such an amazing person on this podcast so i encourage you to um explore and check out his artwork and what he does because uh he really is a he really is a force within the indigenous art community so neil thank you again for this this was really great having you here more importantly i want to thank you for joining us and spending your time listening to what i feel is a very important story and perspective from our community so please join us again next week as we speak with another incredible person i'm joe williams you can find me at canna that's c-a-n-a-a creativity among native american artists on facebook instagram twitter or across social media and at our plainsart.org website. There, you can see our programming, past videos, and these podcasts. If you have a suggestion for someone for me to interview, uh, please look me up on Facebook and message me. I'd really like to hear from you. Okay, that does it, and we will see you next week. This has been an 11 Warrior Arts production.